0: Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, rage, rage against the mediocre box office numbers. This is The Rundown. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Blast Zone. Welcome to The Blast zone. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like The Rundown, which we'll be talking about today. But before we get into that, Ian, how are you doing this week?
1: I am feeling run down, and it's not just because of the movie. But I'm pumped to be here. This is my happy place in the podcasting studio And this is a fun movie, so I'm ready to talk today and forget all my troubles.
0: How about you? Yeah, real interesting one we got going on today. I'm excited to get into it. I remember watching this movie quite a bit when it first came out. I owned it on DVD. Oh, okay. It was in heavy rotation, so this is a bit of a nostalgic one for me. It's one of those movies I think nobody really thinks about unless you bring it up to them. And they're like, oh, yeah. That movie with The Rock and Stifler, I remember that. Yeah, and they they seem to have fond memories of it, but it's not at the forefront of anyone's mind typically.
1: Yeah, if I recall, that's exactly what I said to you when you brought it up to me.
0: Yeah, like in the jungle, is that right? The Rock yeah. and Stifler? Yeah, and I was like, Rock yeah, that's the Stifler, one. Yeah. So, but before we get into that, you know what we like to do? We like to talk about something we watched that wasn't for the podcast that we happen to enjoy. So, what did you have for us this week?
1: This week, I watched something that it made me feel feelings, and they were mostly good feelings. I watched In the Heights. Um, oh. Fun, mostly a good time thing. It's I won't get too much into the current controversy around it because there was some backlash around mistakes that the filmmakers may have made in the casting and the people felt they fell short on representation. Right. I don't have anything smart to say on that, but on the content of the movie itself, it was very enjoyable. I'm not a musical expert. So I didn't know really what to expect. And it had sort of simple, uncomplicated characters and situations, but it did what I want a musical to do, which specifically Cats did not do. If anyone has listened Ooh. to our episode on Cats, my main complaint about it was like a musical to me should be charismatic actors acting their asses off singing and dancing their asses off and that is the joy of the musical and if it has a cool story that's a bonus but i just want a talented performers going off and this movie had that, had a bunch of really fun people. I, I loved the cast and had a bunch of catchy songs. And so I had a good time with it. Good summer fun. All right.
0: Yeah, I haven't had a chance to check it out yet. Something tells me we may be talking about it at some point in the future, because if you pay attention to the numbers, which of course we do, it did not do very well at the box office. And indications are it didn't even do well at home. Yeah, so.
1: interesting. And they went hard on it. That was uh, part of the discussion was that like,
0: They did a full-on
1: media blitz, and then Manuel was on Mm -hmm. every morning show and evening show he could get on, and it wasn't enough, I guess. People were not ready to tune into this or go out.
0: And A Quiet Place too. just made $100 million in theaters. Entirely domestic, I believe. I don't think it's released internationally. I think it's all in the U.S., so it's not as if theaters are not open and people are not going.
1: Yeah, it's not that. It's not a home versus theaters. It's just this movie didn't strike a chord, which is interesting. With each new movie release, I think we're learning something about the new landscape of the movie industry and the theatrical side of it especially. And uh, the existing IP and the big monster-y action-y stuff seems to work, but uh, this one did not.
0: I'll tell you, it's uh, Father's Day this weekend as we're recording this, and my wife was like, you like going to the movies, why don't you go see a movie for your first time since yeah. being vaccinated and everything? And I, I could not find a movie I cared to go see Oh no! <laughs> when I was checking the schedule. <laughs> Granted, but there's not that many theaters open near me yet, so a lot, and a lot of the ones that are open have two screens and they're not showing Quiet Place or whatever they're showing, Cruella and in the heights, so it's not a total
1: indictment of the industry. But yeah,
0: but it's, I'm having a hard time. Yeah. I want to go. I want to go to the movies, and I'm having a hard time finding something I want to see.
1: That's too bad.
0: But if, for mine, I went back in time. You went with super current release. I went with a movie that's almost 25 years old at this point and it's got a little bit of a tie-in to the movie we're talking about today. I watched 1997's Copland. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with this movie. Uh, James Mangold directed it, acclaimed director James Mangold, and it was supposed to be Sylvester Stallone's big critical breakthrough where he plays a New Jersey sheriff who's dumpy and middle-aged and bumping up against the upper limits of his intelligence constantly. That's well put. Right. It's a great cast. I mean, lights out cast and one of the young police officers, played by Mr. Peter Bird. Oh, so the director what, of the Rundown, what a when he was still acting on the regular. But Harvey Keitel, Robert De Niro, Sylvester Stallone, Robert Patrick. Ray Liotta looking like Ray Liotta in the last 30 minutes of Goodfellas, but for the entire movie, <laughs> it's insane how many people are in this. Being. That is
1: insane. I forgot all that. I had seen it and I remember it as that. As Oh, hey, you know what? We're going to find out if Stallone can act and do something where he's not a pumped up hero. And the, the general impression I took away was, yeah, he can. And it was pretty good.
0: Yeah, I, I really liked it when it was I didn't watch it first when it came out because I was pretty young, but I definitely watched it early 2000s maybe and really enjoyed it. I would love to cover it on the podcast. First glance, I think it made a little too much money. It had a $15 million budget and made $60 million. But I wonder if we can fudge it a little bit to talk about it in a future episode because I was reading about it and everyone was super disappointed with the take. So it might not have lost money, but it Mm. probably didn't make any either. And it might be one of those. With that
1: cast, like you got to set your sights pretty high. So
0: And they all worked for scale because they really believed in the Uh. project. But Stallone did an interview a few years ago where he basically said he enjoyed making Copland, but it tanked his comeback. And so I I wonder uh, if there's enough there to cover it in terms of a disappointment rather than a bomb, because I think it's a really interesting movie and it would be a lot of fun to talk about.
1: Yeah, maybe we set up a fudge factor theme month where we do movies that are on the edge that we really want to cover.
0: Absolutely. But we don't have to do that with this movie because it decidedly lost money quite a bit of it, surprisingly. We're talking the rundown. What is your familiarity with this movie? Did you watch it when it was new? I'm not sure now whether I
1: got to it in theaters. I remember watching it pretty early on and coming away like, oh, that was fun. That was a fun action movie. There was some laughs and some excitement. I think we are going to wrestle with like, why did it flop hard? Like this should have been fine. People should have wanted to see this along with everything else that was out.
0: Yeah, aside from the somewhat questionable star power of Dwayne the Rock Johnson at the time, it had a cast of other serious actors that people really like, Rosario Dawson, Sean William Scott, Christopher Walken. I mean, this is not a cast of nobodies. And it's a fun, breezy, almost Indiana Jones, or this hadn't come out yet, but it reminded me a lot of like Uncharted, which is a video game series, and it had a lot of that same sense of humor and adventure. I don't know, it seemed like a surefire thing, but do we want to talk a little bit about how the movie got made and we can try to dissect it from there.
1: Yeah, let's hear how it happened.
0: All right, so... Dwayne The Rock Johnson seemed destined to be a star. Grandson of professional wrestler Peter Maivia and son of professional wrestler Rocky Johnson, he joined the then-WWF after college and an unsuccessful attempt to play professional football. They told him you can't hit the quarterback with a folding chair. Originally debuting as a wholesome, happy-go-lucky wrestler named Rocky Maivia, Johnson gained more notoriety after embracing a more brash, trash-talking character simply dubbed The Rock, eventually becoming one of the biggest stars of the so-called Attitude Era. Praised by wrestling fans for his charisma and microphone work, Acting was a logical next step for Johnson, and he made his film debut in the 2001 smash hit The Mummy Returns, playing a character called the Scorpion King. He would revise the titular role in 2002's Mummy spinoff off The Scorpion King, which made $180 million on a $60 million budget, making it a modest success. His next starring role would be in 2003's The Rundown, playing the role of a mysterious retrieval expert known only as Beck. He sounds like a loser, baby. Originally offered to Steven Summers, who had directed Johnson and Mummy Returns and produced The Scorpion King, directing duties would eventually fall to Peter Berg, who had up to this point only directed the 1998 cult favorite Very Bad Things. You hate to be known for doing very bad things. Filming began in Hawaii during September 2002, and despite a somewhat troublesome production, the film was released one year later on September 26, 2003, to mostly positive reviews. It could not run down enough fans to make it a financial success, however, finishing its box office run with $80.9 million worldwide gross against a budget of
1: 85000000 find the people and bring them back
0: now. And I wonder what this movie looks like with Steven Summers. If you're a fan of those mummy movies, Peter Berg's got a little bit more of a hard-edged, macho guy persona in his movies, and Summers is a much more whimsical, carefree, adventure romp type director. I don't know. I'm curious how that looks. It's interesting because
1: the tone of this film has you asking who contributed what. There's the outlines of a story that are very generic and familiar action movie territory, a guy with responsibilities to a shady character, has to do one last job and he faces a vexing counterpart and they're sparring and they're becoming buddies. And, you know, like it's got all these familiar things, but it has these interesting choices in terms of tone all the way through it. And you're like, this feels like Peter Berg is bringing a lot to this movie. But like we often say, the tone is unclear at times where it's trying to go. And uh, maybe that was one of the weaknesses of the film.
0: Peter Berg had made some quotes in an interview, and I don't have the quote in front of me right now, but that indicated the movie was originally heading in a more hard-nosed action, maybe not R-rated, but like a harder PG-13 direction until The Rock was cast, and he thought they wanted to capitalize on Dwayne Johnson's popularity with younger audiences due to his wrestling fans and maybe soften the movie a little bit. Now, the way he phrased it didn't make it sound like a negative. He said just with his natural charisma, he made the movie a little more fun and, and more of an adventure romp, but it's If you read between the lines there, you can maybe see that the movie got away from Berg a little bit, what his original vision was.
1: I mean, I don't want to get right away into big conclusions about the movie, but it just made me think for the first time that, like, if you put a really serious guy in the lead role, that gives you a more natural balance off Sean William Scott, who's playing the comic relief guy, very goofy at times. And since both of them are funny, it's maybe doesn't give you enough of that familiar contrast
0: yeah, it feels like The Rock's trying to play straight here, but he can't quite tamp down his natural inclination to goof off a little. And at times, yeah, that leads to a little bit of a clash because you have two comic relief guys following each other around the jungle getting skull fucked by monkeys.
1: Yeah, I mean, my favorite part is when he actually <laughs> loosens up and does some funny line reads in one of the monkeys scenarios. That's the only but I felt There's really multiple
0: monkey skull fucking scenarios <laughs> in this movie. Are we going to bleep out skull fucking in this one like we did in R.I.P.D.? <laughs> we'll see. It remains to be seen. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's for the edit. But yeah, it's so it's mostly fun, but then it, it veers into some dark territory at times. And it's a movie that's at feels like a couple different movies jammed together, but I don't dislike it. I actually had a lot of fun watching it. Yeah, it's very pleasant.
1: There's nothing that you go, oh, what is it doing? Or I wish it hadn't done that. But yeah, a movie like this, you want it to have some menace, right? Because the action depends on there being actual stakes and like, oh shit, the bad guy is real. But of course, if you can cast Christopher Walken, then you do. And then you give him some dumb lines and he hacks them up even further because that's what he does. And that's why you hired him. But again, it sort of waters down the that otherwise would have charged the action scenes with more fear and, and given you more contrast for the comedy scenes.
0: The villain in this movie is committing atrocities yeah. on a pretty he's large horrible. level, but he's so goofy. But you know, when you think back to Raiders of the Lost Ark, I feel like most people remember that as a fun movie. The bad guys were literal Nazis. yeah. So you can't get any more evil than that. Yeah, so that's really kind straight. of, that's par for the course for this type of genre movie. Yeah. Should we talk a little bit about the story? Get into it.
1: Why don't we do that? Let's go for it. A man named Beck played by Dwayne, the rock Johnson is a so-called retrieval expert who collects on gambling debts for a living. Now Beck doesn't mind fighting but he hates using guns and he always offers his subjects a non-violent option A unless they force him to go to option B. But what Beck really wants in life is to open a restaurant. So when his boss offers to release him from all future obligations if he completes one last job, Beck can't say no. Off he goes in a rickety plane landing in the depths of the Amazon jungle to bring back Walker's wayward son, Travis. Now, Travis, played by Sean William Scott, has been hanging around a remote gold mining town called El Dorado, run by the sinister Cornelius Hatcher, played by Christopher Walken. Travis claims that he's pinpointed the location of an ancient artifact called the Gato do Diabo, worth millions of dollars. And Hatcher tries to stop Beck and Travis from leaving town because he wants that golden statue. And Travis doesn't want to be taken away without the Gato either. So he crashes Beck's car, forcing Beck to march Travis through the jungle to try to get back to the airstrip on foot.
0: Great synopsis. I did have one question, though. You said Christopher Walken plays a character named Cornelius Hatcher. Is that correct? Uh, Yeah, that's uh, my understanding. I have him in my notes as scissors because Rock beats him. Oh, Oh, shit.
1: Oh, my. Boom. Boom.
0: (laughs) Take that, Chris Walken. I'd like to thank the Academy, my family, my agent, my (laughs) co-host, Ian collecting my Oscar. Well deserved. No. So yeah, great synopsis of the opening third of this movie. A lot going on here. There's one of those movies that it, it opens with a whole scene
1: in another place. You know going in that this is a movie about a jungle and it starts with a nice contrast, urban setting in a nightclub. Beck is doing his normal gigs. You can understand who he is and what he's about, which I
0: like movies that start that way. It sets the tone a little bit. It gives us some background on our main character because he's a pretty mysterious guy otherwise. And it gives us the expectation that he can beat up an entire football team single-handedly. Some of them who are carrying guns, which I thought was an odd choice for professional football players.
1: Interesting commentary on the NFL.
0: I think at a certain level of fame, like you hire someone to carry a gun for you. Oh, you know you made it. That's just my understanding of it. And I'm not in those circles, so... What do I know? But yeah, the fight scene is cool. Like you mentioned in our conversations before recording, it kind of establishes this cool, almost video game aesthetic where you get stats on every person he's about to fight before they throw hands And I thought that was like a nice little touch that maybe wouldn't have worked over the course of a whole movie. It almost feels like something out of a Scott Pilgrim or a Tony Scott movie. But I thought that was a fun little flourish that they added to that.
1: Yeah, there's this whole sports thing because he's collecting from a quarterback and the quarterback has all these teammates there. So it keeps freeze framing and then showing the ESPN style graphics package about who each guy is. And it's like, okay, this is a movie that's going to do these wacky cutaways and, and add its own sort of meta flavor, but then it doesn't do that again. Just kind of, they left me hanging, I thought.
0: Yeah, there are some wacky cutaways later in the movie, but they don't feel of a tone with these ones. And the wacky cutaways later in the movie, which we'll get into as they come up, I really didn't like, but I liked these. So when we first meet Beck, he's sitting in his car outside the club he has to go into to secure the Super Bowl ring as collateral. And he is listening to Emerald read a recipe. Talk about mushrooms. So Beck wants to open a restaurant with his ill-gotten funds eventually. And He's taking some pretty beginner level notes on this (laughs) recipe for somebody who is supposed to be an excellent chef and aspiring restaurateur. Emerald's like, the king of the
1: mushrooms is the porcini mushroom. And then Beck's like, oh, I write this down porcini. So it's like, okay, he just got an idea that he's going to do a recipe with porcinis, right? But he starts writing a porcini mushroom, because that's remember that he's talking about a mushroom here. And it's not just because he just wrote it down not thinking. He gets interrupted in the middle of the word mushroom, and the funny wrap-up to the whole scene after he's beat up a nightclub full of NFL players is that he comes back and finishes writing the word mushroom. Right. He's back. If he
0: saw porcini mush, he would have been like, <laughs> what would've... was
1: I trying to say? Oh, no, my, my <laughs> restaurant idea is doomed. I don't know what the porcini mush
0: is. You don't know what a fucking porcini mushroom is? I know what a porcini mushroom is. <laughs> yeah, Come on,
1: if you got what they were trying to do, but it left you wondering: Does this guy know anything about food?
0: I, maybe they were trying to appeal to a more mass audience, but like, yeah, use a more obscure ingredient than that. I don't know. It was funny though. So they're in the jungle now. He kidnaps Sean William Scott. What do you think of Sean William Scott in this movie? And in general, what's your kind of take on him as an actor?
1: I don't really remember my impressions of him as Stifler. I have not gone back to any American Pie stuff since back in the day. And I guess that was probably... You don't need
0: to. <laughs> yeah,
1: this is probably all that I've seen him in. And so I was like hoping for more coming back to this movie this week and rewatching it. And I felt like a little let down. I'm like, I like his look. I like his sort of overall thing that he has, his vibe, but then I was like, oh, he's a little flat. He's not really getting me the way. And I, and the guy that came to mind when I saw him was Ryan Reynolds. And I looked it up, they actually have really interesting careers that have very similar timelines in terms of where they started. So Ryan Reynolds started in Van Wilder, I guess, another school age rascal as Stifler was. But then Ryan Reynolds just has so much more charm. And you can see that based on where his career went, where Sean William Scott's career went.
0: Yeah, you can definitely picture them competing for roles like early on in their career. But Mm -hmm. then Sean Williams, Scott, he had a few misfires. We'll get into like his overall career a little bit at the end. But I really like him in roles where he gets to be this kind of goofball that we know him from movies like Road Trip and the American Pie movies. And this one, but then there's movies he's done more recently, like Goon, which is actually a really underrated movie, where he gets to play like with a lot of that goofy energy, but also insert some pathos into it and play like almost a down-on-his-luck type guy. I find he lands, that's his sweet spot. A guy who's kind of laughing through the pain, maybe.
1: Yeah, that and sounds much more interesting. This character is just wild and unformed.
0: Yeah, he's an assembly of quips and <laughs> weird Gags that recurring bits that keep coming up that don't really work, which we will list as they come up. Yeah. But then there's the stunt work in this movie, which Berg said he wanted to make a really viscerally like punishing movie. He wanted the punches to feel like they land. He wanted everything to feel like he wanted you to wince when people got hit in this movie or when there was a stunt. And there's this huge stunt where they fall down the mountainside. What'd you think of this? It was, I went
1: along with the stunts. I think that this is actually a stunt movie. That was my overall takeaway. As I watched through it, I realized that, that the, all the rest of the story elements are to set up The stunt scenes, mainly the fight scenes, but then this falling down the mountain scene, which I mean, it's cool. Like, I get it. That's the hook, like how your heroes get into Jeopardy, that they're going to have to spend the rest of the movie digging their way out. Do it in a big way. Go big. But then I felt, and you know, I watched these things on the small screen because that's just me. And even on my small little tablet that I was watching this on, I felt this was like almost a Zucker Brothers parody of a stunt where like they kept cutting to a different scene of the stuntman. I'm like, who's that guy? That's not The Rock. Like Just like funny guys in wigs falling down a mountain.
0: I think falling down a mountain is just an inherently comedic thing now. It's been used in comedies and cartoons so much that even when you're trying to play it straight, it's almost impossible to do it now now, unless you play it super realistic where it's obviously a horrifying and dangerous act. But they went a little too funny in this. I mean,
1: actually, this wraps around because Peter Berg comes back to falling down a mountain. Lone Survivor has a horrific falling down the mountain as the main part of its plot of its Navy Seals, who in an absolutely tragic counterpart to this scene, he he came back around to that later in his career. Oh, see, I
0: haven't checked out Lone Survivor yet, but this man was determined to get a good falling down <laughs> yeah. a mountain scene. I mean, because the stuntman originally refused to do it. So they brought in another stunt man who I think was The Rock's cousin, actually. Oh, really? And he ended up, I think, breaking his ankle. <laughs> like somebody got super injured. This wow. is one of the production issues I mentioned during the monologue. But yeah, Berg insisted on this. The stunt had to happen. It had to look real. And then you, the way it's edited, yeah, like you're, right, it's almost edited in a funny way. And feel like you went through all that for this I don't know but overall the stunt work in this movie is very good and the fight scenes are choreographed really well I enjoyed seeing them The Rock is obviously a great physical actor and a great athlete
1: Yeah he's a presence so. and it's fun to see like you believe him like the basic thing that the movie is selling you is that this is a tough guy who's actually capable of this a superhuman badassery the rock sells that and you buy it because it's fun to see him pull that off
0: but if you put the rock side by side this movie in like fast five which came out eight years later 2011 he's changed physically so much to from then to now oh god yeah he's, he's small comparatively in this movie he looks like a normal guy who's like very muscular compared to this i know absolutely inhuman physique he has now yeah
1: what have movies done to our perspective. And we talked about steroids and talking about other actors. We talk about movie technology getting better, how the quality of the images and the cameras jump forward and the quality of the muscles jump forward too over the last 20 years.
0: Are you saying it's not normal for someone who's 20 years older to look twice as muscular with so much less body fat than he did? <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Shredded, vascular, ripped. <laughs> He's amazing. I mean, good for him. I hope that it takes nothing away from
0: his enjoyment of life. And his Don't get it twisted. He's still got to, he still spends hours a day in the gym. Oh, it must. It's, it's just it's crazy. What a lifestyle. Yeah, it <laughs> consumes your life at that point. Let's yeah. Read Mark Wahlberg's fucking daily itinerary, and he's nowhere near as muscular as The Rock. He wakes up at like 4 a.m. to go to the gym. Yeah, he's in that. So the walking character, a.k.a. Scissors, he is a terrible person, but he's so like silly. I don't know. It's a strange juxtaposition between the acts he's doing and the way he's doing them. I don't know.
1: It takes the edge off, like we said, because now I'm picturing if you did this with a 90s style villain, you take a bad guy out of a lethal weapon or one of like those- Brian Cox.
0: Cock- in this role or someone like who has some real gravitas and menace. Yeah,
1: this would be a lot scarier, but as it is, it's corny and fun because Christopher Walken just throws, like they give him these stupid lines and he just throws them away, which is like his thing and it's on purpose because they weren't very good and it's funnier that he just rattles them off in his weird backwards way. But yeah, it makes the whole movie kind of a farce, which I guess is fine. But I don't know, maybe the public didn't want a farce. And that's why they didn't spend their money on it.
0: It seems like when they want somebody to be scary, they turn to his brother, Harvey, or his little whip henchman. Yeah, the whipman. To lay down some more scary, serious tone. His brother, Harvey, played by John Grise, is that how you pronounce it? G-R-I-E-S? Yeah, i not Grise? Sure. Grease? Grease or Grise? Find but like out. a famous character actor, Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. If that's where I know him. Do you yeah. remember him from that? I know him from Lost. He played Ben's dad on Lost in a generation-spanning role. He had some real old guy makeup on at the end there, so that uh, okay. was interesting.
1: That's why probably why I didn't recognize him.
0: Well, no, he's also plays the young version of himself, so...
1: But also, in the half this movie, his face is taped up because his nose is busted or whatever. And, right. Uh, so, yeah, I missed the chance to recognize Uncle Rico in the first 15 minutes, and after that, there was no chance for me because you can't see his face, really.
0: He's obscured for a big chunk of the movie. And then we got to talk about the deck. Character played by Ewan Bremner. Yes. Is their pilot and I guess fixer on the ground, kind of guy who knows the area, can get them into places, get them in rooms with people they need to talk to. What's your take on this character? (laughs) It's over
1: the top. And they, I mean, they play it as, again, another comedy character in this comedy action movie. His main gag is that his Irish accent is so thick that he has to keep repeating himself and tell them that he's speaking the English language. And it's, it's pretty funny. I mean, it's kind of corny, but he adds some fun. It's like a very stock kind of character, right? Like, I don't even know how you describe it, but you recognize it instantly. You're like, oh, yeah, that's the that guy. And the
0: uh, trope of the character is recognizable. But yeah, I yeah. feel like they go out of their way to make him obnoxious. And it's just one comedy relief moment too many, in my opinion. He's, I don't know, I found him grating after a while. And some of the stuff he does in the movie just doesn't make sense to me, but we'll talk about that when we get to it. And then, of course, shouts to MacGruber. We've got another I don't use guns trope going on in the movie here. Very popular one. But I thought this played off well, except for one scene at the end when he has to reckon with this vow he's made not to use guns that went on a little too long, but- Overall, that's a fine way to get your R-rated movie a PG-13 rating. Because, you know, if The Rock had a gun, he'd just be shooting everyone (laughs) and walking away. It was a way to keep it family-friendly. I mean, overall, like all the choices, at least you can
1: go, okay, they chose a direction. They put a comedy bad guy, or at least a a campy bad guy. They had the hero go PG-13. And so, like, okay, they're doing a thing.
0: Yeah, for all the nitpicking I'm doing, again, I want to stress, I like this movie. It's just we're examining it at a pretty deep level, so you're going to find things about it that you want to dissect a little more. All right, so did you have anything else about the first section you wanted to talk about? No, let's see what else happens. All right, so Beck and Travis bicker their way through the jungle until they get in trouble with a troop of horny monkeys. Then they're taken captive by the dangerous local rebels, and Beck must fight to prove his strength until the leader of the rebels arrives, and it turns out to be Travis's friend, Mariana, played by Rosaria Dawson. Suddenly, Hatcher's men attack the rebel camp and Beck, Travis, and Mariana are forced to escape together on a boat. Travis leads the trio to a secret cave where they retrieve the Gato, after which Mariana drugs the guys with a psychedelic fruit and takes off alone with the idol. When they come around, Beck and Travis finally make it to the airfield, but before they can leave, they find out Mariana and the Gato have been captured by Hatcher, so the boys head back to town to set things right. Real moral dilemma at the end there, where they say, we have what we need. Should we get out of here? But no, Beck has a change of heart. He's a man of his word. He said he would get Mariana the Gato. Yeah. She gave him Travis. He says, I got to go fix this.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of people showing their character in the, in the moments of decision and generally being good people which is nice. I yeah. like a movie that actually decides that it wants its heroes to be good and doesn't sink into toying with moral ambiguity too hard. Cause this is definitely not the movie to do that.
0: Right. Travis doesn't seem like a real innocent when Beck kidnaps him. So you're still on Beck's side for that mostly. And then even in the scene with the football team, we see them packing guns. We see the quarterback throw a drink in Beck's face just because he told him he owed money. So Beck is not an anti-hero in the traditional sense. He's no. pretty much just a strict hero and that's fine. That's a breath of fresh air, almost surprisingly, to have a hero that is uncomplicated in that way.
1: He's as nice as you can be for a mob enforcer muscle guy. He's the sweetest one you could ever hope to get.
0: And a non-lethal mob enforcer. So there's that. He'll beat you up, but he won't kill you. Yeah. Not until much later in the movie. (laughs) Right. So there is an uncomfortable scene here where... Travis has to pee and he makes Beck let him pee but Beck zips him down but won't quite let his penis out of his pants to pee again this is, this is a really long scene it goes on for quite a while they really are with argue this negotiation it. between the two yeah. you know, what Beck is willing to do and not willing to do
1: it starts with Travis as his hands are handcuffed behind his back he can't figure out how he's going to pee Beck's like okay just pee in your pants we ought to keep moving no, and then they turn it into a whole argument and then they escalate it into well can you unzip my fly okay and since he's actually nice guy he does. And then the whole thing unravels because two seconds after they've worked out some kind of thing, Beck gets caught in this snare and his keys fall out of his pocket. And Travis instantly sits down on his butt and passes his hands underneath him to the where they're in front of him so he can unlock his cuffs. Well, how come he couldn't figure that out for the last 10 minutes while they were fighting over the peeing?
0: I guess maybe we got to give Travis some credit and think he was trying to play possum a little bit and not show his hand that he was a little more resourceful than he'd let on. He, was, he just was just
1: stringing that out to try to see if he could create an opening for some mischief. That,
0: that's that got to be my read on it. And that's a generous read. Yeah. That's I'm trying my best to let the movie off the hook a little bit. Otherwise, the implication if he didn't do that is that he would have just been walking around the jungle with his penis hanging out of his jeans. Because... <laughs> we about to start that.
1: If you look like there's like a couple shot before the rock steps into the uh, the pig snare, there's a couple scenes after Travis has peed and there's strategic leaves and stuff over his crotch because really that's right. theoretically his his thing is dangling out.
0: Yep, sticks just blowing in the wind. <laughs> Another thing we got to talk about Travis is the thunder and lightning bit he has where that's what he calls at points his fists at other times his feet doesn't really seem to be a consistent thing with him it's just whatever weapon he feels like using at the moment i say weapon very loosely because he's incredibly inept with any kind of fisticuffs
1: yeah it's where you find out that the character is not just cocky and sort of loose cannon is that actually when he gets into trouble he goes into this crazy guy mode. I guess it's a crazy guy. I I had myself asking, what does the character think he's doing there?
0: Right. Does he think he's going to fool them and maybe get the upper hand on them in combat using very basic...
1: Talking tough, like, I'm so badass. But it doesn't make sense because by the time he pulls this on Beck, Beck's already beaten him down multiple times and totally shown that he's physically dominated him. So there's no chance that Beck is going to be intimidated by this. It's he's doing it for Beck's entertainment. I don't know. What is he doing? And then, I mean, it makes a joke. One of the like trailer moments or TV commercial moments are when he goes hopping on one leg towards the rock to to unleash his thunder kick and the rock just punches him in the face. And it's funny, but it's- Yeah,
0: that was in every single trailer for this movie ever made. (laughs) So that answers the question of like, why is he doing this? He's doing it it because it's a funny moment. And- It doesn't make sense within the logic of the movie, but yeah, it it made me laugh the first time I watched it, like the first time I rewatched it for the podcast and then the second time around, I was like, all right,
1: it's (laughs) a laugh. I do have to admit that particular thing of him hopping and hooting like a monkey or whatever he's doing. And then getting punched. It's just funny physical comedy.
0: Yeah. And a lot of this movie is just Sean William Scott and Dwayne The Rock Johnson walking through the jungle arguing with each other. And I think these scenes were fine, but The Rock's a little wooden in, at this point in his career, right? Yeah.
1: I mean, a wooden rock, who would have thought? (laughs) To be serious, we think about this in terms of how the film performed, but it's hard to imagine a time when The Rock was not a movie star and one of the biggest movie stars in the world. He was a guy who was making a transition into acting and his acting chops were just not there yet in this movie compared to now. You would put him in anything and you would expect him to just charm the pants off of you, but he's Just barely keeping his head above water in some of these scenes, especially where he's doing some of these little speeches that just don't, they're just, oh, it just didn't really get me.
0: Yeah, we've alluded to it a little bit, but he's much better when he's playing like full on goofy, which he only gets to do briefly in this movie. Yeah, But because that was closer to his wrestling persona, and that was like a more well honed portion of his personality at this point in his acting career, those scenes come through a lot better than when he's playing the pure straight man. Because at this point in his career, he just hadn't worked it out. He hadn't figured out how to do that and still be engaging and charismatic. Obviously, now if you watch him, he plays a pretty serious character most of the time and does so convincingly mm-hmm. but yeah it's fun to watch this and then maybe watch some of his more recent stuff even movies that in particularly like skyscraper he's not really the problem with and he's playing a pretty serious guy in that movie so that's yeah it's an interesting juxtaposition from this point in his career to now
1: yeah kudos to the rock he, he earned he earned his place
0: yeah, he earned his stripes, and I got to call out Ernie Reyes Jr. As Manito, one of the rebels in the jungle here, seems to be Mariana's second-in-command. Do you know what he was in that I was a big fan of as a child? Well,
1: you'll have to tell me. You put him in the notes, and I had to Google him because I had not watched these shows. But tell me about how he became a beloved face of your childhood.
0: Well, I saw him, and I was like, there's no way that's him, right? Uh, I didn't, I don't remember making this connection when I watched this movie when I was younger and okay. came out. But he's Kino from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 Secret of the U's. Oh. One of the main cast of one of my most favorite childhood movies, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the U's. So he is not a Portuguese speaker natively, as you could probably tell if you no. know anything about Portuguese. Yeah, But yeah, he's a great, I won't say a great actor, but he's a great martial artist yeah, who's acted a... in things before.
1: <laughs> right, yeah. He has a long acting <laughs> career as a martial artist. And I, I read up on him. He has quite a history. He comes from a martial arts family. His dad ran a sort of demonstration team that did martial arts and he was a child prodigy in it. And it was He a seems to be things. doing
0: mostly um, like capoeira in this movie, which makes sense given the locations in Brazil. But he had a big speaking role in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. And that's where I remember him from mostly because he was one of the main characters in that movie. And I haven't watched it in many years. I'm sure it's terrible as an adult, (laughs) but I loved it as a kid. So I'm going to hold on to that and never watch it again.
1: Well, speaking of the Portuguese, you and I, not being native Portuguese speakers had a suspicion that it was not being spoken in an authentic way. I think that it's really not good and there's nobody, it's not like there's some... Brazilian actors, or I think there's one actor who plays a guy arguing over what he's getting paid for his gold in one scene that sounded like he was maybe a native Portuguese speaker. But everyone else, the main characters in the cast, the Ernie Reyes character, the Rosario Dawson character, are just really struggling to sound even halfway credible as Portuguese speakers.
0: Yeah, and there was something on IMDb Trivia, which take everything you find in IMDb Trivia with a a grain of salt, but they said that they played this for some uh, Brazilian audiences and they had no idea what the characters were supposed to to even be saying because the the accent or however they were pronouncing the words was so far off, they couldn't make out what they were supposed to be saying. So yeah, that's, that's pretty bad. It's yeah. For American audiences, it's going to, it's not going to make much of a difference. I'm sure most of the time.
1: No, but it did for me, it kind of spoke spoiled and no knock against Rosario Dawson who I really like and she's very charismatic and she has a role that she's one of the more serious characters in this movie. She doesn't actually get to play funny very often because she's in the serious part and like all her scenes were just oh like that accent what's going on. It changes from scene to scene and I'm like oh you're spoiling my enjoyment of her and her character because it's just it's
0: weird. Her accent is is spotty. It changes scene to scene much like (laughs) Sean William Scott's beard length. Did you notice this? I didn't until you pointed it out And then I'm like, oh yeah, that's different. There's one scene where he's in the water and his beard is like wet, and it's almost like he looks like a shaggy dog in a cartoon. Like he has so much beard hair (laughs) that it's like hanging down from his face. And then there's another scene where he's barely got any stubble. I know there were heavy reshoots for this movie, so maybe that's part of it. He he couldn't quite keep his uh, his beard length straight. But I thought that was
1: yeah, hair and makeup falling down on the job.
0: Seems like it'd be easier to just have him stay at a stubble level the whole time. That way Easy you can, to replicate. But no, he had a full beard in some scenes and baby faced in others. So it was funny. It's just one of those things you notice.
1: Before we move on, in this part of the movie, after they get drugged by the strange psychedelic fruit, Konlabos, which I don't think is real at all. I think it's a cherimoya. Is that right?
0: Yeah, Trimoya, there are no psychedelic attributes to this fruit. It's just a made-up thing for a movie, which fine, have your fun. That's okay. Yeah, I don't it's care. a
1: good gag. And then they do all these visual uh, distortions of characters' faces to show that they're tripping balls. And that's kind of fun. I mean, it's dumb, but it's kind of funny. Like, they get some actually get some laughs out of it. And then they're paralyzed on the ground, and the monkeys who tortured them in the earlier scene where they were swinging from the snares that caught them come back around, and that... <laughs> That was my biggest laugh of the movie. We alluded to it earlier. When get the, out of
0: here, monkey. Yeah,
1: get out of here, monkey. They, they can't talk yet because they're still paralyzed. And so it's, they're lying on their side, seeing the monkeys sort of queue up to have their way with them. And uh, they're yelling at them. And I don't know, I feel so warm towards The Rock because of that one-line delivery.
0: Good eye, yeah, monkey. that really shows you where his strengths lie. And apparently these monkeys were not native to either Brazil, where the movie takes place, or Hawaii, where the movie was filmed. They're baboons from Africa, so... They must have flown them in, especially for, I guess, how terrifying they look or whatever. But
1: I wasn't even sure they were all the same kind of monkey. They were like a family of baboons. And the one, the big scary one definitely looked like a baboon. But then they would cut away to another one laughing from the sidelines. I'm like, that monkey's the same color, but doesn't even look like a baboon. I, I don't know. It's like the Portuguese. They play fast and loose with the monkeys.
0: Yeah. We may never know the truth behind the baboon <laughs> family that harasses Rock and Sean William Scott and makes sweet love to the side of their head several times times throughout the movie well they don't get to in this scene but they try
1: no it's the threat of it that forces them out of their paralyzed state and back on their feet thankfully
0: it's Chekhov's monkey dick we saw it in act (laughs) one so it's going to come back later in the movie
1: came back it was fired (laughs) in act two to take us into act three so back in El Dorado Beck and Travis launch an outlandish final showdown with Hatcher and his whole army of goons Beck avoids using guns until things get really bad, and then he defeats all the bad guys by shooting the hell out of them. Mariana gets to keep the gato for the good of the local people and gets to take Travis back to his dad to complete his job and earn his freedom. But when he realizes the dad is being a dick, he drugs Walker using Mariana's psychedelic fruit, and he and Travis head out together still bickering all the way.
0: I mean, was there any chance Beck was going to hand Travis over to his asshole of a dad, right? There was almost no tension in that scene.
1: Yeah, I'm wondering, did I think, I I guess I was curious how it would play out because the dad was one of the actually darker characters. He actually held sway over Beck's future and he had to really fear He he was not
0: played for laughs at all, really. He was pretty serious and and threatening throughout the movie. Yeah,
1: he had one of those good character actors that plays scary effectively. I don't know the man. Is he
0: the guy from Congo? by the way oh Oh, i don't remember
1: but he was good i mean he was a good scary guy
0: now that we're talking about him i feel like he was also a somewhat similar character in congo and i just have to find out sorry
1: no i don't know (laughs) congo another movie where monkeys have their way with people
0: god i wish congo (laughs) lost money so badly because i would love to talk about it maybe that could be one of our where we bend the rules it's such a stupid movie but i love it so much no i don't think that was him oh well yeah too bad so this big battle
1: it very much felt Like all of a sudden we were in a television show, like a nineties TV show was like a A A-team kind of a thing or a MacGyver thing where they had the big battle with the big horde of faceless goons, faceless soldiers in khakis. And because we have a non-lethal type of a hero... They brought in a herd of cows to sort of mess up the bad guys. And you've never seen more soldiers taken out by falling awnings and falling into fruit carts. This movie is old, old school.
0: Very silly. Oh, getting the cows to basically do their dirty work for them. First of all, if the rock gets on your surveillance cameras like I'm coming to kill you right now. Like you better watch out, buddy. <laughs> and you're like, okay. And then a crazy Scottish guy walks into the town square playing bagpipes and threatening <laughs> you. Like, just fucking shoot him. What are you even doing? Why yeah. are you just standing there? How did he get watching away with
1: that? Because he he's so just, crazy that they go, Oh, don't shoot him. He doesn't know what he's doing.
0: Basically cutting a pro wrestling style promo on <laughs> Hacker and just they just let him. I don't know. It was so so weird. He said some pretty threatening things. I went back and watched it
1: again. Cause you actually can't tell what he's saying half the time, which is right. It gag. takes
0: it, it takes a second. <laughs> the joke <laughs> of the
1: character. So he's blown him a bagpipe and he's dramatically rattling off some threats. And he's actually pretty much, your time has come, you're going down. I, I would think that one of those soldiers might be a little trigger happy.
0: And and, and justifiably so in that case. Yeah. I mean. Also, when did Declan become like part of the resistance and become so gung-ho for the rebels and Beck's cause? He went from being pretty okay with the status quo, as far as I could tell, having his own little role in this town and being somewhat comfortable to taking up for them in a pretty serious way. Unless he's
1: actually just so nutty that his real Joy is not actually in enacting justice for the locals, but in just being the craziest version of the colorful local dude. So, this was his chance to get to go off. And so, it happened to line up with what The Rock was trying to do, but this was just him having fun getting to pull out his bagpipes.
0: So, basically, you're saying Declan might be like the Joker from The Dark Knight. He's just an agent of chaos, (laughs) a dog chasing cars, if you will. He kind of is that. Yeah. I I guess I could read that.
1: He gets more and more hyped into his own sort of nuttiness. In the end, he's sitting at a table across from a local old lady and he's shouting poetry at her? Like, what's going on there?
0: So this is the cutaway I mentioned earlier that really didn't work for me and took me out of the moment every time I did it. I find these so goofy and so dumb. Yeah, he's reciting the, uh, is it Dylan Thomas, right? I, I think, think so, he's, yeah. Or he's mixing a few poets in there, mm-hmm. but and boom, shakalaka and all this <laughs> stuff. It's just weird. I don't know. It feels like a Tony Scott thing, but like Tony Scott spent a career honing that weird method of random cutaways and overexposed lighting and stuff. And yeah, I don't think Peter Berg quite has it down.
1: No, it was weird. Like, you got what it was, but it did take you out. Like, what is he doing? Where did he go? First of all, he found a place in town where he was far enough away to be not in danger of being shot by the thousands of bullets flying in every direction, but also close enough to just get super hyped over the battle and start screaming about it.
0: Right. Like, there's still a bartender or a waitress serving him (laughs) drinks, so it can't be that close to the action. So... There's quite a few big explosions that The Rock walks away from without a second thought. Now, this was probably an overdone trope in 2003, but I feel like you can't even get away with this, not even once anymore. Yeah,
1: I wondered select, about it. Like,
0: it gets called out immediately in any movie now. Yeah, cool, guys. It's, Don't look at
1: explosions is a known th- thing.
0: Yeah, and there was. Uh, you, have you seen the music video that Andy Sandberg and uh, Will Ferrell made about it?
1: Once Upon a Time, I have. I forgot, whether was this movie in it? Because it should have been if it was in time.
0: I know there's, yeah, there's a montage of them. I bet this movie's in it. I didn't rewatch before this, but we're going to put it in the show notes. <laughs> so take a look in the show notes after this episode and you'll see the video. If this movie's not in it, I'll be shocked because it's some... Great A, cool guys don't look at explosions bullshit going on totally here. It is totally
1: that, yeah. It's actually done pretty well. He's got a badass look on his face, and then his shirt whips around him in slow-mo because of the force of the, the blast whipping around him. It's kind of a well-done one as far as these things go.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's shooting 12-gauge shotguns with one hand each, which is just <laughs> absurd. You'd s- snap your elbow in two, I think, immediately.
1: Yeah, this is the point where he's now transformed from a gun-hating guy into a gun-maniac, Which is done through an interesting device, which shows up earlier in the film. At some points, it's never explained why exactly he hates guns and refuses to use them. But he says, bad things happen when I touch guns. But then it's not just his history. It's that he has kind of mystical power. Because when guns start going off around them, he starts zooming in with this telescopic vision and some slow-mo sort of like hyper-awareness of what the guns around him are doing. Did that make any sense to you?
0: I think it was just playing more on his abilities as a super fighter and that kind of spatial awareness you need to have. Okay just to the nth degree. I mean, I think it's pretty clear why he doesn't use guns. It seems like he probably shot a whole fuckload of people at some point. He yeah. just doesn't want to do that anymore. But he's like sniping guys with a shotgun, like shooting guys that are like 30, <laughs> 40 yards away. Do you know how a shotgun works? It shoots <laughs> buckshot. Like, well, like with the rock. That's a scatter shot. You're not like, those are effective at
1: like 15 feet away and no further. If you're really strong and you squeeze the trigger in the right way, you can sort of group it more tightly. I think that's the point.
0: That must be it. Yeah. Squeezing the fuck out of those triggers. <laughs> but yeah he also takes I didn't time it and don't fact check me on this it must be like seven minutes to decide if he's going to start using guns when he's under fire and Travis is being shot like the car they're both hiding behind is literally just like a Travis is, and yeah. a couple wheels Travis is inside a
1: bus <laughs> like, that's filling up with spilling gasoline and it's being shot at from 20 different directions
0: he's and like, this goes on for 45 seconds I think and the rocks just ah do I do it he's
1: debating <laughs> he it and the barrels are zooming in and the bullets are coming out in slow motion and it's just those on and on. But the thing is, this is one of those areas where the dots don't really connect. It goes through the motions, but you don't actually know what he's struggling with. You can just imagine, well, something bad must have happened. So he's really having a hard time, but like you didn't see it. He didn't even really tell you about it like Rosario Dawson's character asks him for an explanation in the middle of it when they have one of those downtime getting to know you scenes and even then he gives her like a really vague explanation so there's nothing concrete to tie you into where you actually feel emotional about oh shit this is the moment where he has to relive his bad experience and decide uh, I'm gonna touch a gun because it's it's necessary
0: and maybe like a little flashback to a young rock and like a shootout you see an innocent pedestrian caught in the middle and you don't have to spell it out too clearly but it right. at least gives you an idea about maybe what went down would have probably helped connect some of those dots.
1: Yeah, maybe that's what you would do if you hadn't gone down the more comic- Root with this movie, but maybe they should have still done
0: it. I would have loved him a Gruber style reveal where it's just he doesn't know how to use them. <laughs> right. And then, like, he, when he finally does, he just like throws guns at people instead of <laughs> tomahawk throwing a shotgun. It, but he, he does some of that before
1: he decides to use them. He is creative in how he disarms people and uh, uses the guns against them. Right.
0: He ejects a clip and uses it to trip Travis at right. one point, yeah. which I thought was cool. So I guess it wouldn't have worked. Because, I mean, even to just like eject a clip, you need a pretty decent working knowledge of how a firearm works. That's true. So, yeah. So, Walken finally gets got. In the scene, he gets taken out. Hatcher is dispatched. What'd you think of his demise in this movie? I kind of liked that he finally gets shot. And then instead of dramatically dying, he just like wanders away, dies on his own. Yeah. Like 20 feet away from everybody
1: else. (laughs) I mean, a lot happens because first he gets shot once in the arm right? Beck shoots the gun out of his hand and someone shoots him in the arm and he's still fine and he's still tossing off lines like, you got the moves, I'll give you that. Good
0: line. And then... Well-delivered line. Yeah,
1: that was fun. I mean, his lines get funnier towards the end. There's still comic relief, but then in, in the film's idea of justice, they let the townspeople deliver the shots that actually kill him so that it's sort of justice from them over the man who's made their lives a living hell. Which is nice. And then there's a funny, ironic twist where the whole movie has been about Beck trying to offer his opponents peaceful option A, and they keep choosing option B, the painful option. And then Hatcher tries after he's been shot twice in the gut to go, you know what, I'm going to take option A. And then he walks away and kills over. So I thought that was like, that was actually one of the smarter written bits of the film.
0: Yeah, it's a fittingly pathetic death for this terrible man. And before he gets shot, he does call the local freedom fighters Oompa Loompa Moron Ingrid. <laughs> Which what an insult. Yeah. and Fun to, fact. You got to well, shoot
1: the guy at this point. You cannot be yeah, called that. And
0: how you look at yourself in the mirror after that. <laughs> but Walken had never seen Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory and was a little nervous about calling him that. I guess he didn't know like the origin of the term. He didn't want to say something that was really like out of.
1: Yeah. That could have been offensive if you'd never heard what an Oompa Loompa is. That sounds, whoa, where are you going
0: here? So good for Walken for doing his due diligence. Yes. i like, where exactly is this term from? But then uh, Peter Berg gave him a copy of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory to watch. So he watched that and was like, okay, OK, I think I'm comfortable with it now.
1: I, I'm picturing Christopher Walken in, in a hotel room in Hawaii getting set for the role. And like last minute courier brings him a tape.
0: Grandpa Joe. Sorry, that's all you're getting to my Christopher Walken impression. It's <laughs> terrible. I do not have a Christopher Walken impression.
1: No, I thought I might try one earlier and it just didn't happen. So I'm with you.
0: Yeah, everyone has one, but so few of them are any good. Yeah,
1: yeah, you don't want to come out with a, the weak sauce one
0: yeah kevin pollock's is probably the best but i'm just a guy with a podcast yeah
1: exactly we're not we'll have kevin pollock on one day and do all the impressions that we couldn't
0: so that was the rundown uh fun movie enjoyable movie it critics agreed they liked the movie yeah they gave it 69 on rotten tomatoes as of this recording so that's overwhelmingly positive especially for kind of a pg-13 romp starring a professional wrestler yeah better than you might have expected given the box office performance of the movie, but yeah, it's 104 minutes. I think that's like the perfect amount of time to spend with this movie. An hour and 40 minutes is is just right. It doesn't need to be two plus hour epic. Although if it was made today, it probably would be. Yeah.
1: That's all they know how to do.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about some of the people involved in this movie and what they'd done before and what they would go on to do after. Peter Berg, of course, a favorite of the podcast, already covered him with Battleship. But this was only his second movie that he directed. As I mentioned in the monologue, his first movie was Very Bad Things, which was a commercial flop. But kind of gained a little bit of an audience after the fact. It's a very dark comedy. It's about as dark as you can be and still call yourself a comedy about The Bachelor Party gone wrong. I have not seen it in many years, but maybe we'll cover it one day. We'll probably cover a bunch of Peter Berg movies over the course of our our run.
1: Yeah, strangely, we seem to. And we should probably have for the record, it's not because we are personally big fans of Peter Berg. Right. I don't know if we fully even brought it up in our Battleship episode. He's not that savory a guy. Like there's stories around Hollywood of some sort of real unpleasantness with Peter Berg. Some like, of them
0: are not just stories. Yeah, some of them are direct quotes you can look up if you care to. He seems like a dick.
1: Yeah. So are we just, are we dumb here? Like, why are we spending so much of our time talking about <laughs> Peter Berg stuff when we're like, don't have good feelings about him personally?
0: Well, we needed to talk about him because we needed to complete. Part two of our Taylor Kitsch trilogy, That's right. which was Battleship, which was a Peter Berg movie. And then with this one, you know, The Rock's got a new movie coming out soon. It seemed like a good time to dive into a rock movie. And this is the first one I thought of just because I had fond memories of it. I didn't even remember that it was a Peter Berg movie until we started prepping the episode. So it definitely was not intentional. And I think we'll probably take a good sized break from his movies for a while. Yeah,
1: I look forward to that. But yeah, we're totally, we <laughs> love Taylor Kitsch. We love The Rock. That's why we're doing these movies. Yeah, it's not the fact Peter. that Berg was good.
0: involved in both of them is just a unhappy accident, I guess. After this, he went on to do Friday Night Lights, which was a hit, and his first real hit as a director. And then he would go back and forth between hits and flops for a while, like Hancock, The Kingdom, right. Battleship, obviously. Lone Survivor was a bit of a hit. And then he's had a string of flops with Mark Wahlberg since then, so fuck off. And it was written by R.J. Stewart who had written Major League Two and nothing else except many episodes of Xena Warrior Princess. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Thought that was interesting. He was one of the creators of the show and an executive producer. And then James Vanderbilt, who has a pretty shitty writing resume with one major outlier. So he wrote Darkness Falls, shitty horror movie, and Basic, shouts to John McTiernan. Okay. Keep your head up, man. I know you're out of jail now. And those are both bad. And then he wrote a really good movie, which I will reveal later. And then after that really good movie, he wrote Amazing Spider-Man 1, Amazing Spider-Man 2, both mediocre to bad Spider-Man movies. White House Down, bad. Independence Day Resurgence, bad. Also future episode. But in between Basic and this and those movies, he wrote Zodiac, one of like the best movies ever. And he's the only credited screenwriter on Zodiac. That's not like David Fincher came in and, and wrote it with him. He is the only credited screenwriter on Zodiac and wrote all these other kind of dog shit ass movies. Okay. So that's weird, right?
1: That is weird. It's an adaptation though, isn't it?
0: Well, yeah. Robert Graysmith, the Jake Gyllenhaal character in Zodiac wrote a book about chasing the Zodiac, and I think that's where a lot of it came from, okay. but it was non. But, you know, the movie is heavily fictionalized version of, of what kind of what Graysmith really did. was not really a direct adaptation. I
1: see what you but mean, But yeah. that was
0: certainly where they got a lot of the inspiration. So that was weird, but, yeah, good for him. He's got an all-time great movie, one of my probably top five movies ever, I'd say, Zodiac is.
1: Well, I'm going to have to watch Zodiac and then look out to see if any horny monkeys make an appearance.
0: Right. Zodiac, also kind of a bomb, so maybe we'll cover that at some point. Oh, that would be fun. So the movie changed titles twice. Twice. we were gonna do that fun little bit we do where we come up with better titles for the movie, but they did it first. The movie already did it for us. Yeah, <laughs> so, what
1: the heck, man? Stealing our bits. originally
0: titled uh, "El Dorado," which you can see somebody's written over the El Dorado sign to indicate that, so it makes an appearance in the movie. And right. welcome to the jungle which Travis, I think, says at some point to Beck.
1: All fine titles. Nothing wrong with the title they went with or any of those. Maybe *Heldorado* is more evocative.
0: Yeah, I'd say if I was going to change it, I'd go Dorado, but I like the rundown. It's nondescript, though, which maybe had something to do with why the movie didn't perform better. *Heldorado* is a little more attention-grabbing, but maybe it evokes a more serious kind of dark movie.
1: I was going to go the opposite way. I thought maybe *Heldorado* would create that that expectation that this is going to be sort of over-the-top and kooky-action versus the rundown sounds like that could be a very serious action movie that's just a pure thriller and not a comedy at all.
0: Yeah, The Rundown almost sounds like one of those Jason Statham movies he made in like 2007, which were just like The Mechanic, The Airplane Pilot. I don't know. You exactly. get a bunch of fucking stupid movies like that. The Transporter. Yeah,
1: <laughs> or some Denzel movie could be called The Rundown It was just a serious action movie.
0: Yeah, that's got like serious safe house vibes, yeah. The Rundown. I could see that. So another part of the troubled production of the movie was Berg and producer Kevin Misher were held at gunpoint while location scouting in Brazil in June of 2002, and filming was immediately changed to Hawaii. That was a nice so, choice. I mean, Hawaii I, seems more hospitable to filmmakers, I guess. A lot I get of movies it. Get and it worked out great.
1: Like, something I didn't bring up during the story part was Hawaii, the locations look awesome in this movie and they did some great helicopter shots. There's some transitions where they pull out from the heroes in one part and they come up to a hillside and you see the bad guys on the hunt for them. And the shots are just stunning and it actually feels like they're actually too classy the aerial scenic shots are too good for this movie and you forget for a second you like think you're watching a better movie and then it gets back to the action you're like oh it's just this cheesy popcorn thing
0: yeah very lush scenery in this movie and you get that kind of Jurassic Park vibe because it's filmed probably on a very similar location yeah. where it's like you said it's just super classy <laughs> very it looks awesome prestigious yeah. looking stuff and they, I, I like that the scenery and and how the movie was shot more than I like the editing of the movie the editing of the movie. Feels weird, yeah. but the location scouting was done well. And they didn't give a lot of time. If they filmed it in September 2002, and this happened in June 2002, that's only a few months to switch locations, get production set up, and then get everything moving. So, yeah, pretty impressive that they made it work like that. So, now we need to talk a little bit about The Rock's career. Dwayne Johnson's career at this point and where it would go. Now, we didn't even mention it, but there is a big time cameo in the first section of this movie, like in the first five minutes of this movie, as The Rock is, I should start calling him Dwayne Johnson <laughs> because he does not go by The Rock anymore, no, although he did this movie was released, so I could justify it that way. Yeah. But as he's walking into the club to confront the quarterback who owes money, he is greeted by none other than Arnold Schwarzenegger himself. Yeah. Uh, unclear if he's playing Arnold or if he's playing a character in the universe. But all he says to him is, have fun. Seemed to be a passing of the torch moment as The Rock was pegged to be the next big action star.
1: That is a nice, generous way to put it. And certainly like the filmmakers and Dwayne Johnson would take that passing of the torch interpretation. It was kind of just like a stunt, right? I mean, the story behind it, at least as it's told on the internets, is just that Berg was having, or Dwayne Johnson was having lunch with Arnold and, and Berg came by and was like, hey, you want to be in the movie? And he's like, okay. And they just ran down to the set and shot this.
0: Yeah. So as organic as it may have been when it arrived, there was a narrative that The Rock was going to be the next guy to take that mantle, okay. but- it didn't really materialize with this movie or even immediately after it. So I was shocked to find out how much Mr. Johnson got paid for this movie. He got paid $12.5 million to be in this movie. And this is a guy who would only had one starring role before this as the Scorpion King. That movie was not a smash hit. It tripled its budget. But as we know, with marketing costs and theater cuts and things like that, tripling your budget on a $60 million movie is not a lights out smash hit success. No, and It probably made a little bit of money, but not a ton.
1: And the way I picture his mummy appearances in The Scorpion King is like an extended sort of novelty act. Hey, we put the wrestler guy in the mummy movie, and hey, now we made a whole one with just him. Isn't that crazy? Like, it's not, hey, this guy is is a movie star.
0: And The Scorpion King movie, where he actually is the star and has a lot of speaking parts, is a spinoff of a very successful franchise already. The mummy franchise was already a big hit. So how much of that Box office success was due to him. So, 12 and a half million is a lot. They clearly thought they had something on their hands here, but then let's talk about what happened to The Rock's career after this movie. So, his next starring role after this was Walking Tall, which only cost about half this what the rundown cost. It cost $46 million, but was still a bomb. Mm-hmm. Then he made Doom, another bomb, and a really bad movie.
1: Yeah, I totally forgot about <laughs> Doom, that Doom exists. And then he
0: got good reviews for his role in Be Cool, which is a more comedic role than he had done up to this point, maybe playing to his strengths a little bit. More.
1: Yeah, I But remember that.
0: the movie was really bad, and he was a supporting role in it. Then Southland Tales comes, which is a famous bomb that he co-starred with Sean William Scott in. That was Richard Kelly's big movie after Donnie Darko, and it made $375,000 against the $17 million budget. Oh my God. And has gone on to be like a cautionary tale in the movie industry.
1: That's what I call rock bottom.
0: Oh, boom. He also <laughs> does a rock bottom in this movie, his finishing move. But that'll be an interesting movie. To talk talk about at some point because it has its defenders, but I have not seen it recently enough to weigh in at this point. Uh Then came Gridiron Gang in 2006, another box office disappointment. His first real hit after Scorpion King was The Game Plan, but that's a low-budget family comedy in 2007. So that's a big difference from what he'd been trying to do up until that point. Seems like he had to switch gears to keep getting roles.
1: Yeah, like he's already entering into that second phase of action star career where you start making fun of yourself.
0: Right, like Vin Diesel in The Pacifier or Hulk Hogan in Mr. Nanny or Suburban Commando, when you can't get the serious roles anymore. That's a tried and true way. That genre of movie that is just, isn't it hilarious that this man is taking care of children? Right. (laughs) So after that, he has Race to Witch Mountain, which maybe turned a small profit, but it wasn't a hit. Same with Tooth Fairy, maybe made a little bit of money, then came Faster, which lost money. Finally, he turns a corner with Fast Five, but that's the fifth movie in an established franchise, which is a huge hit, uh, Fast Five, and also just a super fun movie. Cannot recommend Fast Five enough. Probably the best in the Fast and the Furious franchise, I would say.
1: That's what everyone says.
0: And then Journey to the Mysterious Island, which was a sequel to Journey to the Center of the Earth, made a lot of money. And that was probably the first movie he was the star of to make a ton of money. Then from there, it's smooth sailing. Then he becomes the rock, the Dwayne Johnson we all know and love, and starts pumping out the hits one after another. But it was not an easy road from his career's beginnings to that point.
1: No, this is a long road. He went through a lot of shit. And thankfully for him and for us, to enjoy the rest of his work. He slogged through this and it didn't disappear under the waves of Hollywood. Could have easily right. happened.
0: And he even went back to wrestling for a stretch in the middle of this. Oh, I don't know wow. if that was just, you know, because he missed it or they offered him enough money where it made sense to do it. Or if he felt like he needed to reignite his star power a little bit. I don't know. But he did go back and do main shows. He wasn't doing house shows every day on the road, but he was still on TV most weeks. So that was The Rock's career after this. Then Sean William Scott's career, uh, a little less up and down, but he works steadily. He still works pretty frequently. He starred in some bombs like Mr. Woodcock, a terrible fucking movie with Billy Bob Thornton. Wow. And Southland Tales, which we mentioned with The Rock which was a huge bomb. He had some modest hits like Dukes of Hazard and Role Models. And then he had blockbuster movies like American Reunion and the Ice Age sequels, which he started uh, appearing in after the second one, mm-hmm. or in the second one and after that. And then he starred in Goon and Goon Last of the Enforcers, which are awesome. But he hasn't starred in a movie or TV series since 2009's Already Gone, which was, I believe, direct to streaming and doesn't have good reviews. I haven't seen it yet.
1: That's not Already Goon, another Goon sequel?
0: No, no. Not already goon, sadly. (laughs) Damn you. But he also jumped on that Lethal Weapon show after Clayne Crawford got dismissed from it. That's right. We talked Um, about
1: Clayne Crawford on a previous episode.
0: Yeah. So he filled in for him, not playing the same character. They didn't try to recast the role, but he played basically the same role with a different name. But that show only lasted like half of a third season before they finally called it quits. I mean, that's a good try.
1: When you picture Sean William Scott and you picture a TV reimagining of his name, Martin Riggs. Martin Riggs, yeah. Like the crazy whacked out cop character like, Oh yeah, this is the guy who plays comedy wacky dude.
0: I find him charming, honestly. I really like Evolution, which is a stupid-ass movie with David Duchovny and Orlando Jones, if you've ever seen it. It was really trying to be like Ghostbusters, but it didn't quite capture that magic. But I still think it's a ton of fun, and also it lost so much money, so it'll be fun to talk about at some point. But as of September 2016, Berg was still interested in making a sequel to this movie with... Jonah Hill and Johnson. So I don't know where along the way Sean William Scott got Hunt Peter Berg's bad side, Whoa, but he yeah. is not uh, welcome in the sequel, apparently. It's too bad. I mean, he leaves mm-hmm. this movie fully intact and ready to start another body comedy with Beck. So I don't know what the issue is.
1: I feel like Jonah Hill since 2016, Jonah Hill has moved past where he would be yeah. cast in this sequel. And now he's got to start looking for another partner.
0: Jonah Hill and the rundown sequels probably not happening in 2021. Maybe you can get Clark Duke. If you want that kind of energy, but that's the best you're (laughs) going to do. Just bring Sean William Scott back if you're going to do it at all. So the big question is, why do we think this movie failed to find an audience? Did they spend too much of the budget on The Rock? But, you know, even if The Rock acted in this movie for free and it had a budget of $72 it's still a bomb. So what was the issue? What do you think?
1: I suspect that it's in something that we can't really see that maybe was in the execution of marketing this. Because the movie, like we said, it lacks some real heft. It doesn't, as I like to say, make me feel feelings. Like it, it made me enjoy a little adventure and there was some laughs and there was a little excitement. But I don't know. This had pretty much all the pieces in place. It goes through all the motions and it goes through them pretty decently. So I I suspect something that we can't see, or it's just some intangible about what this film was up against when it got into the theaters.
0: Yeah. You know, when this movie came out, I was probably its target audience. I was a teenage boy who liked pro wrestling and liked Dwayne Johnson. And I don't think I went to see it in theaters. I think I caught it on home video. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. You brought this up again when we were talking pre-recording that it could have been when it was released in September, and it really does feel like a summer romp. It was released in late September, almost October. So I think they did that to try to avoid butting up against some other big releases that were coming out that summer, but that could have had an impact on it. Everyone's back in school. Maybe if you release this in the summer, you would get the kids who are off from school going to the matinee showings or something. When there's a movie like this, it's not one of those movies that's been dissected and picked apart. And there weren't a lot of articles written about its failure at the time where you can go back and put the pieces together of what went wrong. You know, Look at a movie like Heaven's Gate, or just to draw a parallel. There's whole books written about why that movie failed and what the impact was. The rundown It's just kind of a forgotten relic of 2003. I don't know why I didn't see it in theaters, and I don't know why I wouldn't have, but it really seems like it would have been right in my wheelhouse.
1: Yeah, I mean, looking at that summer, I looked over what happened that summer on the action movie landscape. Too Fast, Too Furious came out in June. So that I see as like a direct competitor, but that had come and gone, I think, by the time... Was that
0: even a big hit? I I remember it wasn't as well-received critically, but I don't know if it made a bunch of money. I think
1: it it made decent money. It wasn't a smash. But like the other stuff that took up the summer calendar that year, X-Men 2, Matrix Reloaded, uh, Terminator 3, Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, Black Pearl... Bad Boys 2. Bad Boys, oh, wow. It's definitely in that genre.
0: Bad Boys 2 is a direct competitor. Yeah. yeah. Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, the Curse of the Black Pearl. It's the first one. So that was a big
1: one. Oh, OK. Yeah. I forgot, I forgot that it was the full title. Yeah. The first one. So then, but that those were all, those guys took the big summer slots, right? So you imagine that the studio maybe, I mean, we saw how tight this production schedule was. Like Maybe they could even gotten it out in, in June or July. But those guys had the June, July summer blockbuster slots. And then in September, when this was coming out, on either side of it was Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Kill Bill, Volume 1, which are more movies that you understand why they came out in September, because they're action thrillers, but they're a little more heady.
0: They're both rated R. Yeah. yeah I saw both those in theaters, uh, actually, surprisingly, but not the rundown. I guess not surprisingly. I only had so much money as a teenager at the time. But
1: yeah, maybe that's why the rundown, because it just wasn't hot enough to take your ticket money.
0: Yeah, I guess it was just the lesser of in that slate of movies. That's a strong summer of... Action blockbuster type stuff. Yeah, so
1: it's a lot to see. Wow.
0: People only have so much disposable income to go to the movies, and also, yeah, there's fatigue. At a certain point, sets yeah. in. You're not going to go to the movies four weekends out of every month. I mean, there are people out there that do, but that's not the general movie going public. You
1: can't rely on that. You need to win some special weekend dollars over to your side. Take it away from some other movie.
0: Yeah, you got to have something that draws people in. Some kind of special sauce is going to lure the public in in this movie. Didn't have a special sauce, but it ended up being a tasty burger anyway, in my opinion. I still, every time I brought this movie up to somebody, when I was like, I think we're going to do an episode on the rundown, they were like, yeah, I like that movie. Nobody remembers it like with strong opinions one way or the other. Maybe it's not a great movie to do a podcast about. It
1: lives on favorably. Yeah, maybe the special sauce it needed could have been paired with a porcini mushroom if that's is that a hey. mushroom my, my notes are unclear on that what a porcini is but
0: uh. it's a mush I think it's just a mush <laughs> we can never know what it really is Too bad. there's no we'll way to be sure know. anyway thank you guys for joining us that was the rundown please remember to rate, review, subscribe do whatever you gotta do to keep Blast Zone on your podcast feed please do we'll be back next week with another episode and thanks we appreciate you we love you and we'll see you next time in the Blast
1: Zone the Blast Zone <laughs>